Well, peace be with you. So today we begin a new a series uh, called The Beginning is Nigh, and I put together a couple minute video which really provides the background of the series and also the books that we are going to explore in depth, First and Second Thessalonians. And so just so we're all on the same page, let's take a look. You sometimes see people holding signs proclaiming the end is nigh. They are talking about the end of the world and as a part of that, the return of Jesus as humanity's judge and savior. What are we to make of all of this? And if the end was in fact nigh, how would that change anything about our lives? But let's back up a minute. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. Communities of disciples started to form. Jesus reigning from heaven was their head. They were his body on earth, his hands and feet. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know the prayer. One of these communities lived in Thessalonica, a religiously diverse and prosperous city on a well-traveled highway called the Via Ignatia. The city had over 100,000 people. Think bustling streets, noise, dogs barking, taverns, brothels, businesses, soldiers, homelessness, philosophers, and curious onlookers. Jesus had died and risen from the dead less than 20 years ago. Questions had arisen. The biggest question, at least for those living in Thessalonica, was about when he would return. One of the authoritative leaders in the early Jesus movement was Paul. He would travel to different communities providing leadership and help. He also wrote letters, including two to the communities in Thessalonica. People had started to call these disciples Christians or Christians because of their head, their leader. Paul needed to answer some of the questions. When would Jesus return? Would their friends who had died somehow miss out because they had already passed away? What was gonna happen before his return? What were the signs? Should they keep working at their jobs? How should they treat one another while they wait? What should their lives communicate to the diverse world around them? How should they handle the increasing persecution they were facing? There are many famous passages from these letters which continue to inspire. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Encourage one another and build one another up. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Do not grow weary in doing good. Although these letters were written centuries ago, they continue to speak to us today as God's living word. No one knows the day or the hour, but there will be a day and an hour. Now back to that sign saying the end is nigh. It has a particular doom and gloom feel. That's understandable. But Jesus is to return as judge and savior, not to simply squash everything, but to usher in something incredible, beautiful, and world-changing. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. Think doom and bloom. It would be a new dawn, a new beginning, and they would get to be part of it. That's why for them, and possibly also for us, they thought that the beginning was nigh. This vibrant hope changed how they thought and lived. Each follower of Jesus was to be a living foretaste of hope, showing others what this new reality, this new beginning would be like. Let's explore this early group of disciples who were vibrating with anticipation by looking closely at First and Second Thessalonians. C.R. Wiley has written, We live by the light of tomorrow's sun, and that sun is the Lord God. Ah, yes, we live by the light of tomorrow's sun. Hope, the beginning is nigh. So that gives you a, a bit of the background, and so with that, we're going to jump right <clears throat> into the text. And so we're going to open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1. If you've got your Bible, that's great. If you don't, 
That's also okay because we'll put the words up there on the screen. But as we do so, uh, the kind of the governing question we're going to keep in our mind is this. What difference does hope make when life is hard? Okay. What difference does hope make when life is hard? We know it's a good thing. We know it's something about the future. Hope is knowing that better is coming. But what difference does hope make when life is hard? <clears throat> All right, so opening our Bibles to First Thessalonians uh, 1, we had some of the background here, and we're going to jump right into it. I'm reading from um, the ESV translation of the Bible. Here we go. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, one of the first things I want to highlight is as Paul, Silvanus, some of your translations will say Silas and Timothy. So although it's kind of like a team approach to writing, really Paul is the primary author. And so um, he's listed first. But as reason we know this is because as we go through, uh, it's often in the first person, I, me, my. And so really it's Paul. But imagine that uh, Silvanus and Timothy are with them. They've gone over the content of the letter together. But Paul is the primary author. Then he gives them this great introduction to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. What a great start to a letter. We don't do letter writing like we used to. Now you send a text or an email. What's up? How's it going, dude? You know, like this is a real introduction to a letter. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father the, couple things, there's three things mentioned, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so work of faith, so that's a reminder to us that faith isn't just something in your head. We need to be living differently as a result of it. If you have a life-changing faith, your faith should be changing your life. Okay, and so that's one of the reminders. And then the next thing, labor of love. He's remembering and thanking God for their labor of love. A labor of love is something that is so important to you and you work for it. Even when it's hard, even when there's adversaries, a labor of love sees you through. And then he says, and he thanks them for their steadfastness of hope. I just love that steadfastness of hope. Steadfast isn't one of those words that we use a lot anymore, right? It doesn't really come up in conversation, but it's a great, powerful word. Think of a big oak tree, right? And these, these massive branches and these, these roots that go way deep down into the flesh of the earth. That is a tree that is steadfast, that will not get pushed around easily by the wind. And here it is, steadfastness of hope. Because of the hope of Jesus, they have this steadfastness. All right, continuing, verse 4. For we know, brothers, and this is a representative term, so it includes everyone, so brothers and sisters. For we know, brothers, loved by God, loved by God that he has chosen you. Pause. This is one of those things that we can take for granted that God has chosen and loves us. But I don't think we should take it for granted because it is so, so very important. Think of the importance of being chosen, okay? Um, when I was young and we were playing a road hockey game, there'd be two team captains and everyone else stands in a group and you choose people. I choose that person. I choose that person. You go through the whole group one by one. The people who are chosen in the first couple, they feel great. The people who get chosen at the end, they feel like junk, right? It's like no one wants me. But here the idea is that he's reminding them, and I think through them to us, that if you're in Christ, God has chosen you and loves you. Think of all the people on the earth. If you're in Christ, God has looked upon the face of the earth, the people of the earth. He has chosen you, and you are loved. Verse 5, he continues the sentence, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, 
but also in power. So signs of power came with us. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So powerful conviction. So this is all about the gospel that they received. So what is the gospel message? Well, the gospel message at its heart, there's many things involved in it, but at its heart is the atoning death of Jesus. We are broken. We sin against God. Jesus comes. He dies sacrificially in our place, paying the price that you and I deserve on the cross. And in a great and beautiful and glorious exchange, we get forgiveness and peace and blessings with God everlasting. And this is this free gift that salvation is to us. And so they have this message, and this totally changes their outlook. They're no longer estranged from God. And so there's other things. God is renewing and renovating his entire world in creation. And we'll get more to that in a second. But something very central and fundamental happens with the individual. And that's what he's referring to here. Continuing at verse 5, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Right? They say that we've acted with integrity. Verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Pause there for a second. And if you're one of those people who tend to highlight Bibles or circular Bibles, I would, I would highlight three words because we're going to come back to them. Imitators and affliction and joy. Okay? So... They received the message, great joy, in the midst of affliction. Now, what is that? Now, this is one of those situations where sometimes when you go through biblical passages, you're like, well, we know some of the context. We don't know a lot of the context, and so sometimes we're just a bit unsure about it. But this is one of the cases where another book in the Bible provides us what I think is some helpful background. And so in the book of Acts, it tells us the story of the early church. And Paul and others are going around in, in churches, local faith communities are being established. This is right after the, the period of resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And Acts 17 recalls Paul and his companions in Thessalonica. So he goes there, and Paul is what's his custom. He goes to the synagogue, and he teaches for three uh, Sabbaths in a row. And Acts 17 tells us what he preached about. He preached about that the Messiah, so the long-awaited Jewish Messiah... God's chosen king and representative on the earth was to come, he was to suffer for the people, and he was to be raised. Oh, and by the way, that has happened, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, he does this for three weeks, and a bunch of people come and they join him. They believe him. Yeah, we, we believe, and you've argued from the scriptures, we believe that is true. And so these people who believed become the church in Thessalonica, to whom he is now writing. Now, another group of people, they get really, really upset at what he has said, at what he has done, and and so all of a sudden, things start to spread throughout the city. Remember, this is Thessalonica. I've said in the video 100,000 people. A few scholars think it might have been even up to 200,000. There's a lot of people, and the words used in the Greek are very strong. Riots occur. And so riots start to occur around what Paul is saying and what he is doing. And so Paul actually has to, for danger for his own life, flee to another town. So he goes all over the place. Uh, he travels, and then he eventually ends up in Corinth. And so he's writing to them from Corinth. In the meantime, Timothy has gone back. He's checked on the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians are doing pretty well. Sends back a report to Paul, and he writes this, this letter. And so they've believed, and they've been given joy by the Holy Spirit in the course of riots in much affliction. It's not like they've been like, hey, believe in Jesus, and life will be great. Hey, if you just believe this gospel message, you're never going to have any problems, and no one's going to oppose you, and you're just going to fit right in with everybody doesn't happen. They are believing with joy in the midst of severe affliction. And I think the context is the riots from Acts 17. All right, continuing with the Holy Spirit, verse 7, so that 
you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So this faith that they have, this joy in this gospel message, even in the midst of affliction, has spread. They mention Macedonia, which is where they currently are, in Thessalonica, uh, then Achaia, which is the province just south. So this is modern-day Greece. So it spread. So remember how in the video it said Thessalonica is on a big trade route, the Via Ignatia? And so there's so many people coming in and out, thousands of people from this trade port city, that the message easily spreads around to other people. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, a favorable one, and how you, three things, one, turned to God from idols, this is the false idols in their pluralistic uh, religious context, uh, two, serve, there's the second word, to serve the living and true God, and two, three, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so this is a part of the gospel message. And so the idea is that Jesus is coming as judge and savior. There is this judgment that will come when he returns. Okay? And so because they're in Christ, they will now be judged favorably, favorably by God. Not because they're great and they're so wonderful and they never make any mistakes. But because the righteousness and goodness and faithfulness of Jesus has been credited to their account, it is a free gift as they stand before God. Now this is also an allusion here in verse 10 to the second coming of Jesus. And Paul unpacks some of those details. This is an urgent question for them. Like, this is less than 20 years from the resurrection. These are in the early days. When will Jesus return? These people are just are, are almost bouncing with anticipation for the return of Jesus. And so he's going to get into some of the more specifics in chapters 4 and 5. But that brings us to the end of those 10 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on that verse that we had earlier, verse 6. Here's what it says. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to highlight three things, and you can circle them or whatever. We're going to look at the second word first, affliction. We need to remember, faith includes affliction. Okay? Faith includes affliction because many of us have been raised in a context where the point of everything is supposed to be health and happiness. And health and happiness is great. I like that. I want that. I, I, I want you to be healthy. I, I want you to be happy. But as you go through life, are you always healthy? No, sometimes yes. Are you always happy? Sometimes, not always. And we can buy into this cancerous thinking, and I don't use that word lightly, that if, if, if somehow we have affliction in our lives, God must be unhappy with us. We must be doing something wrong. Why do we keep believing this lie over and over and over again? Look at the scriptures. Look at Jesus, the most perfect person who ever lived, and he experienced affliction. How arrogant of us that we think we should never experience affliction. Faith includes affliction. It is a part of our life. Scripture teaches it to be too. The second word that we've highlighted there is the word imitate. They became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. They imitated Jesus because they were faithful in affliction. Now, we often talk about what would Jesus do. We want to be like Jesus. And when we think of that, what do we usually think of? Well, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be forgiving. I want to be loving. I want to be holy. I want to stand up to untruth. I want to do all these, I want to be just, all these different sorts of things. But also, 
When you are faithful in the midst of affliction, that is imitating Jesus. That is also part of what it is like to be like Jesus. We don't think of that category as much, but it is true. This verse tells it to be so. Third, joy and affliction are not mutually exclusive. Okay? Joy and affliction are not mutually exclusive. And this kind of connects with our first point. So we think that, okay, if I'm experiencing joy, that means maybe I'm not experiencing any affliction. Or if I'm experiencing affliction, maybe I can't experience any joy. And we think, okay, like oil and water maybe. No, no, no. We've got to think of how these things often in life kind of blend together. They blend together. Okay, so what is joy? Joy is different than happiness, and we've talked about this before. Joy, joy is, is a confidence and knowledge in the love, goodness, and wisdom of God for you no matter what. And that occurs through our life regardless of this, regardless of the roller coaster. And so in this passage, the Thessalonians are given the joy by the Holy Spirit in the midst of their affliction. Now, why, why, why is all of this true for them? It's a four-letter word in big yellow letters, hope. They have been given hope in Jesus. And that is why this is possible. What does it say back in verse 5? Steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the video tries to explain the fact that with the second coming of Jesus, we've got this thinking in our mind that it's all about doom and gloom, and there is a part of that, but it's also doom and bloom. Because Jesus is going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, which is going to be this incredible reality where everything is made new. Every tear will be wiped from every eye, reconciliation, peace, joy, worship at the throne of God. And so they have all of a sudden this incredible hope. They're right with God, not only that, but they get to be a part of what Jesus is going to be bringing any day now. Here's how it functions, okay? Hope works backward to lift you forward, okay? Hope works backward to lift you forward. Now, I'm going to provide a few examples of how this works in a general sense, and then we're going to think about how it uh, works in terms of our faith. Let's say you're working at your job, and it's Wednesday, and you are just hating your job. You're having a bad week. Your boss is being so mean. Oh, my goodness, someone has said something to you. You're like, this week stinks. Uh, but your friend calls, hey, we're going to get together on Saturday night. At Joe's house, it's going to be great. We're going to have a bonfire. It's going to be great. You know, so-and-so is going to bring their guitar. It'll be so great. We are going to see some of our college friends we haven't seen in a long time. All of a sudden, that changes your Wednesday. It changes it because you're like, wait a second, I've got something to look forward to. So the hope of what is going to happen on Saturday night works backward to lift you forward in a way that it might not have otherwise have done. Okay. Second example, let's say you're doing renovations in your house. And uh, you, can't get, you can't use half the stuff in your kitchen, and it's so frustrating. You want to get some clothes, and man, oh, they're behind three stacks of boxes in the garage. This is so annoying, and you're just really down. But all of a sudden, then you find out the original designs and plans of, of what the end product is going to be like. And like, oh, right. Well, I'm going through all of this because the house is going to be like this in a dream house, and I can't wait. And so hope works backward to lift you forward. Now let's think even bigger in terms of our faith and some of the faith that is being discussed here in 1 Thessalonians and eternity. So in his world-famous allegory, um, I think the best English-selling devotional work, 
In the past several hundred years, of course, The Pilgrim's Progress by uh, John Bunyan. It's an allegory, and there's a character named Christian, and early in the story, he's trying to explain his hope and his journey to a character named Pliable. And as he goes through his journey, trying to find his way to the celestial city, he has all sorts of ups and downs, all sorts of difficult, life-threatening things. But this is how he describes what he is shooting for, his great hope to Pliable. He says, There is an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life to be given us, that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. There are crowns of glory to be given us, and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. There shall be no more crying nor sorrow, for he that is the owner of the place will wipe all tears from our eyes. There we shall be with the seraphims and cherubims, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look at them. There also you shall meet with thousands and ten thousands that have gone before to that place. None of them are hurtful, but loving and holy, everyone walking in the sight of God, standing in his presence with acceptance forever." There we shall see people that by the world were cut in pieces, burnt in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in the seas, for the love that they bear to the Lord of the place. All well, and clothed with immortality as with a garment. The Lord, the governor of the country, hath recorded this in his book, the substance of which is, if we be truly willing to have it, he will bestow it upon us freely. End quote. Boom. That is a guy with a great hope that will endure with him through life and so through his journey and also with ours. Now, here's the question that we're going to kind of close with and wrestle with as we begin this series on 1 Thessalonians. It's the thing is, there's a difference between them and us, and the difference is about 2,000 years. And so they lived with this anticipation that Jesus was going to return imminently, and we don't know the day or the hour, although we don't, do know there will be a day and an hour. And so what happens is, is we can sometimes lose the urgency uh, that we need to be living in a certain way before God and have this hope in front of our faces. So we need to maybe be a bit more proactive about it. And so the question is, how can we keep hope in front of our faces? Because that changes our perspective, that changes our attitudes, that changes how we're going to live. How can we keep it in front of us? Because if we're not keeping it in front of our faces, we're so prone to forget. Now again, let me give an example from something else, and then we'll tie it into some examples in faith, okay? Let's say you went to summer camp, and it was a great experience, and you loved it. Maybe it was Ontario Pioneer Camp. Maybe it was a wonderful place up in Port Sydney, Camp Minioe. Um, Whatever it happened to be. And you just loved it. It was so good. And you had friends and faith and you were singing songs and you just made connections that are going to last a lifetime. But you're not there anymore because it's September and you got to go back to school and you got to do other things and there's chores and all this sort of stuff. And then it's December and then it's March and it's still not. And you're thinking about camp. I just can't wait for that to happen again. What do you do? Well, you might be in touch with some of those people, sure. But then all of a sudden you remember, oh, there was that song that we loved to sing and one of the counselors would pick up his guitar and we sang the Lord our God is good and we don't know why but we all just latched onto that song and we memorized the words in a week and we would sing it together and it brings me back to that place and so you sing that song and when you sing that song that hope of camp works backward to lift you forward until you are there again and so for us we need to be thinking about things and here's here's how you keep hope in front of your faces. You regularly do things that remind you 
of the, what the new heavens and the new earth will be, day, will be like one day. Let me repeat that. You regularly do things that remind you of what the new heavens and the new earth will one day be like. We start to do those practices. Let me give you an example. We worship God. We worship God corporately as the body of Christ because we do that not only in the here and now, but this reminds us that one day we will all be worshiping together myriads upon myriads upon thousands. Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come in the very throne room of God. It's an anticipatory act. What else? Well, what about meals? Jesus tells us so much about you know, what heaven is going to be like, and he uses language of feasting and meals. What if every time we had a meal, we reminded ourselves of one day that great and glorious feast we will have with all the saints, with all the best. We will never be filled, and it will be a party. That is an anticipatory act of hope. What about when we offer forgiveness and we are people of reconciliation in our lives and in the world? Are we not doing something not only in the moment, but we are reminding ourselves of that great and glorious day, one day in heaven, where there will be profound reconciliation amongst peoples. So when we are that now, it's an anticipatory act of hope. Lastly, you engage in some sort of maybe healing ministry, something pastorally. You're on a prayer team. Maybe you visit people who are sick. Maybe you volunteer in the hospital. When you are doing that, not only are you helping people in the here and now, you are engaging in an anticipatory act of one day, what describes what is described in Revelation 21. It's so beautiful. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. There'll be no more mourning or crying or death or pain or dread or cancer or heart disease or kids getting sick. Nothing. And so we engage in these things which are anticipatory acts of hope. And so this morning our closing word is with C.R. Wiley. In one of his books he wrote this. We live by the light of tomorrow's sun. And that sun is the Lord God. We live by the light of tomorrow's sun, and that sun is the Lord God. It's a word about hope. Now, of course, he has a double meaning. He talks about tomorrow's sun. Knowing that it's going to be sunny tomorrow somehow brings something to us today, but of course, it's not only S-U-N, it's S-O-N. We live by the light of the sun of the return of Jesus, and that somehow comes back and impacts who we are today. So I hope we will journey together as we go deeply into these two passages of Scripture, First and Second Thessalonians. Hope works backward to lift you forward. Friends, the beginning is nigh. Amen.